Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we will continue our reflections into 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you are a new listener, we have been at a study of First and 2 Corinthians now for some months, and, and really what we are doing here is just going through these books verse by verse right, to really get at the heart of what St. Paul is after and to really appreciate how he develops his letters. Uh, These letters are pastoral letters, and so while there is a lot of theology, there is certainly a lot of practical application. Uh, So we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we have been reflecting into the first 10 verses, those verses that have had us reflecting into what makes St. Paul such a great minister of God, such a great minister of reconciliation. Now, before we get into that chapter, I was asked a question that I wanted to respond to, and it was pretty simple. Joe, since you have been studying First and Second Corinthians, what has been the one thing that has stood out to you? And, you know, the best way and the most honest way to answer that question is to just well, respond to the first thing that came to my mind, minus maybe what I've been talking about the past few days, right? And that was 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that chapter that speaks to what but the way of love, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is really the centerpiece to 1 Corinthians 12 and and 1 Corinthians 14, because those are the chapters on charismatic gifts. It's the centerpiece because if we don't anchor those gifts that God has given to us in love, then, well, what do we have? What do we have? And so when I was asked the question, what has been the one thing that has stood out to you? It's just having more time to reflect into that beautiful chapter, those beautiful 13 verses, the way of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. And then in closing, 
St. Paul so beautifully writes, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. But the greatest of these is love. So we can have knowledge of saving mysteries. And we can exercise extraordinary faith. But if we don't anchor these in love and in active charity, they don't mean anything. Some of us believe that faith alone is sufficient for salvation. Others believe they will be saved by Christ's sacraments alone. Others rely on works of mercy alone and think they can sin with impunity. What St. Thomas Aquinas reminds us of and so many others is that such people fail to understand that nothing avails without charity. This is why James says faith without works is dead. Dead! This is why we've gone back time and time again to Philippians 2 verses 11 and 12 and following that we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, that we might have a deeper understanding of what it means to anchor everything in love. So when you ask me, what is the one thing that has stood out to me? Well, it is 1 Corinthians 13 for a reason, because in it, God has reminded me of my weaknesses and, and shortcomings that I have come up short in what God has asked me to do. You know, if you want to become a saint, read 1 Corinthians 13 every morning. Try it and see how it begins to give shape and form to your life. It's something I'm doing right now, and it's certainly helping me. <laughs> I can at least say that it's helping me. All right. Now, returning to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we are in these verses, verses uh, 8 to 10, that get into these paradoxes, these antitheses, and I want to wrap up our discussion on these paradoxes and antitheses. Through glory and dishonor, insult and praise, St. Paul goes on to write, we are treated as deceivers and yet are truthful as unrecognized and yet acknowledged, as dying and behold we live, as chastised and yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. So he writes in this form of antitheses where he is juxtaposing one thing against another. And so as we were going through these, we were coming to appreciate that it isn't about what man sees, but in the end, what God sees, right? So we have these last two antitheses to go through. The poor and enriching many, and of course, the having nothing and possessing all things. So these last two antitheses are expressed how, but in economic terms. You have heard me say before that, you can find 
the context of economy everywhere in sacred scripture. Why? Because God understands what we hold close to our hearts, and he wants to blow that up, right? We hold the dollar very close to our heart, and he wants to turn this whole idea of what we lean into upside down so that he might turn our understanding of who he is right side up. So Paul writes that he is economically poor. He is hungry. He is thirsty. He is poorly clad. He is homeless. Remember what we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that Paul was one who was hungry, thirsty, poorly clad, homeless. Yet, yet paradoxically, he is capable of what? Enriching many, as we will see later in this particular book, in in chapter 8 and chapter 9. He has committed himself to facilitating a collection for the church in Jerusalem, one that would provide economic relief to people in great need. So he will provide for many. But as you and I both know, Paul's main way of enriching others is by proclaiming the gospel. As our Lord's co-worker, he dispenses spiritual enrichment, right? What do we read in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8? but the inscrutable riches of Christ. So whether Paul enriches others materially or spiritually, he imitates Jesus, who became poor so that others might be enriched. Hence, although in the eyes of the world, Paul is regarded as having nothing, he is actually what? Possessing all things, including the treasure of the gospel of the glory of Christ that we talked about in chapter 4, which he preaches by word, and even more eloquently, by self-giving love. That beautiful love that we just spoke to in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We can now step back and maybe appreciate here, more topically, the progression of Paul's resume, if you will, as a minister of God, as a minister of reconciliation. These first 10 verses have been about Paul's credentials, communicating to us what it takes to be a minister of God, a minister of reconciliation. He commends himself as God's minister by enduring many sufferings, right? Both those inflicted by others and those self-imposed, with divine assistance, of course. This heavenly aid empowers him to take on the character of our Lord. So Paul thereby shows forth God's righteousness in all situations. Righteousness in the Greek is that uprightness, that holiness of God. Indeed, my friends, his very existence is paradoxical. While his life involves poverty, sorrow, and dying, nevertheless, he is wealthy beyond telling and has great joy because of the life he has already entered into that life of being poor in spirit. Oh, how important is that first beatitude, my friends? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. A beatitude that we can probably best translate as how fortunate those are who beg for their very life's breath. Remember the Greek word there for spirit is pneuma, where we get the word lung, breath. 
At once we might recall the deer of Psalm chapter 41, verse 1, which in its race for the springs of water stops on the drop of a dime. Why? To regain its breath. Thus it is said that my soul pants for you, O Lord. And what do we exclaim in Psalm chapter 38, verse 10? All my longing, Lord, lies open before you. My sighing is not hid from you. You see, my friends, panting and sighing for God with one's life breath is the whole occupation of those who possess humble breath, we could say. What do we read in Psalm chapter 118, verse 31? My mouth I opened and drew in breath because I yearned for your commands. Here again, we are made to draw from that most ancient truth that comes to us from sacred scripture, that we are to long for God the same way we long for the air we breathe, right? Air is like grace, the sine qua non of our very life. That is to say, <laughs> without air, we would not be able to live. And in the spiritual life, without grace, we would not be able to draw from God. This first beatitude is what St. Paul embraced, and it is the vantage point from which he, he wrote and preached. So to be thus radically dependent, as St. Paul reminds us, and certainly as the first beatitude reminds us, is to long for God the same way our lungs long for air. And when we do this, we declare by, by our very existence and by our very being that God alone is sufficient. And this is our greatest fortune. This is our greatest bliss to cling to God with one's whole being and have nothing to offer of one's own. This paradoxically is the highest fulfillment and ecstasy. This is what St. Paul has been deliberating on. You know, you have heard me talk about the Beatitudes in conjunction with the Ten Commandments. If the first Decalogue on Mount Sinai declared how far man is from being like God because of the sin that continually condemns him, then in the Beatitudes, this new Decalogue, this new law, proclaims how much man is or can be like God. How the unbridgeable distance between them can in fact be abolished through humility and this interior poverty, this interior longing for God. But this first beatitude just doesn't stop at the blessed are those who are poor in spirit. No. What St. Paul wants us to see and appreciate is that for those who are blessed because they are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What is most striking in the second phrase of this first beatitude is the present tense of the verb, by contrast to the future of most of the other beatitudes. It is as if any benefits, fruits, results, rewards that might follow at a later date are quite secondary to the central fact of being citizens in the kingdom of God members of the kingdom that Jesus is. 
right? Jesus is the incarnation of the kingdom of God. Now, this expression is very strong, the is. Not only are those who have the spirit of the poor in the kingdom of God, not only are they members of it, the text says unequivocally that the kingdom of God belongs to them, which is to say that they are in the parity of status with the king himself. What Jesus wants us to see is that for those who are poor in spirit, by their radical poverty of existence, they have been made royal as Jesus is royal, since he is the king who stripped himself of all things except obedience to the Father's will. Which leads us back to Paul. In particular, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, on the heels of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. Why? What does he say? To those who are poor in spirit, you know the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. There it is. There it is, my friends. We speak to the first beatitude because the first beatitude really is the glove ball fit to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. Now, when one reflects into the beatitudes on the heels of everything that we were talking about, one should be mindful of something. What is omitted by the Lord in the beatitudes is as striking as what he actually says. What do I mean? Well, does he say from the outset, blessed are those who give alms to the poor, blessed are those who give drink to the thirsty, blessed are those who shelter the homeless? No. He gets to that later in the Sermon on the Mount, but he first says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You see, my friends, this first beatitude is about a state of being a state of being. That is what I mean to say when I say, blessed are those who long for God the same way our lungs long for air. It is about our very existence, right? So once we have established that as the first truth, then we will be able to better understand how to give drink to the thirsty, alms to the poor, shelter the homeless, so on and so forth. Once we understand that first truth, then we'll understand what we do. Again, being precedes action. Being precedes action. And so it is, my friends, why we need to contemplate these things because, you know, for so many of us, we do get caught up in the, the doing, the action, that we forget about who we are and, and who God is calling us to become, which is first and foremost greater sons and daughters in him. And we do this, for starters, by being poor in him. By being poor in him. Okay, Father Stegman, the Jesuit who I've been pulling from in our series of reflections on 2 Corinthians, has a closing piece to verses uh, 7 to 10. And, and here he engages perseverance in ministry. And I just wanted to, to read this and uh, kind of reflect with it a little bit. He says, two phrases in the middle of Paul's dizzying list of credentials, through glory and dishonor and through insult and praise, ought not to be passed over too quickly. 
They speak of the need to persevere in pastoral ministry in the face of suffering, opposition, and rejection. While pastoral ministry is seldom easy, its burdens are greatly lightened when we see positive results from our labors, when we have a good support system, and, and when those to whom we minister show us appreciation. But what happens, as it eventually does, when our ministry seems to bear no tangible fruit, when we feel alone in our work, when no one bothers to say thanks, when we are criticized and second-guessed, when we are misunderstood. Paul teaches that we are called to transcend the vicissitudes of ministerial circumstances and embrace the moment. While no one is called to work in an impossible situation, we should not err on the side of running away at the first signs of discouragement. More importantly, Paul emphasizes that it is God who provides the wherewithal to persevere in ministry. This is why daily prayer and regular sacramental nourishment are basic necessities of pastoral ministers. We have before us, my friends, this truth. To neglect prayer is to neglect ministry. Okay? To neglect prayer is to neglect ministry. Why? Well, first and foremost, if we are not praying, our ministry is going to dry up right? It will become like that barren desert. It just will. Why? Because God is the protagonist in our ministry. It is Jesus who is working in and through us, right? We have explored this a great deal. So we go to prayer. We converse with God so as to be informed on how we are called to inform others. And this is a constant back and forth because Jesus is constantly wanting to reveal himself to us so as to show us how to better work with others, so as to show us where to go, how to handle this situation and that situation. We have to be in constant conversation with God so that we might do what God is calling us to do. Again, that prayer is about the being, right? Being precedes action. Now, Father Stegman there also spoke to the sacramental life. What did we say about air and grace? <laughs> I, my friends, the sacramental life nourishes us because the sacramental life gives us the grace that is the very sustenance to do what God calls us to do, to live as God calls us to live. Okay? So in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, we really have had the opportunity to engage the heart of our Christian and Catholic faith, have we not? I mean, this has been a, a week that has afforded us to get back to the basics so that we might be a better version of who God is calling us to be, so we might become the person that God desires us to become, which always means we are in the process of, right? There's always going to be a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be. So if we're going to close that gap, if we are going to become that person, we have to do so in prayer and the sacramental life. Huh? This is what is ever before us. All right. I am looking up at the clock and we are running out of time. If you have any questions, comments, observations, please do not hesitate to email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j -L -L at yahoo.com, or as always, you can go to my website, spelled J-O-E, 
H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T.org. That's joeholcraft.org. And again, just send your message on its way as I continue to receive your thoughts, comments, questions, and again, your questions that I take to the radio program, especially on Thursday. I do so with great joy. I, I love engaging you on the various aspects of just not the Catholic faith, but just divine revelation as a whole and how we are called to better understand sacred scripture and live out sacred scripture. One of the things I was talking about yesterday is we need to actualize the biblical text in our very life. If we're going to become that person that God is calling us to be, which has been such an emphasis for us of late, then we need to actualize sacred scripture in our life. We need to read sacred scripture. We need to marinate in sacred scripture. We need to soak in sacred scripture that we might have it on our fingertips, just not to share, just not to defend the faith, but to first and foremost, live the faith, live the life that God is calling us to. Always, always, as we noted from the outset, in the way of love. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.